So we're continuing our study through Philippians. And remember, the, the title of the series has been The Key to Abiding Joy. And we've looked at several keys so far. Um, one that Paul shares with us is that his joy comes because of the spiritual growth of others. And that joy is even, is even greater when he has personally invested in them. So one of the things about joy is when you have invested in other Christians, when you have shared your faith, helped them come to Christ, when you have walked with them, discipled them, helped them through difficult times, when, you, when you've been there from when they were just beginning in their faith and you've been there all along the way, when that's happened, even more so, you have joy when they continue to grow when they continue to have victories, when you see their ministries doing so much more. And so that's one of the keys. And you might ask yourself, like, if you, if you think, like, well, why don't I have joy? Why don't I have, have the joy of, of Paul? Well, do you invest in others? Do you share the gospel with others? Do you help others grow in their faith? If you do, you're going to find joy. There's also this joy that he talks about just in the spread of the gospel. And the reason, again, it's not just because he has the knowledge of the gospel being spread, but because he knows what the gospel did in his life. He knows what he has experienced and what he continues to experience. He knows how he went from being that, that angry, hate-filled young man to someone who's just overwhelmed with the love of God. The, he went from being the one who just wanted to get rid of everybody who disagreed with him. And he went to someone who would say, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Spread of the gospel. He finds great joy because he knows others are experiencing that. He knows that others are having that opportunity that he had. He knows that they're coming from darkness into light. And that's got to bring you joy. So he has joy. And notice, it's not just joy because he's spreading the gospel. It's joy knowing the gospel is being spread. We, we sometimes get caught up in in like this kind of like weird understanding of Christianity in the church. And, and it's almost like we're competing with other churches. Why are we competing? If I hear that, that another church is doing a great ministry, I shouldn't feel like, like jealous or guilty or feel ashamed or anything. I should rejoice. You know, God's word is being proclaimed. The gospel is going out. If I hear about, you know, a, a, another pastor or other Christians who, who are able to have, you know, if, effective ministries, we should rejoice. All, all around the world today, churches gathered. All around the world, the gospel is proclaimed. Throughout Hawaii, Hundreds, if not thousands of churches are meeting and proclaiming the gospel. Are, are we rejoicing at that? 
And then the last thing that he showed is this, this knowledge that he will someday be with Jesus more fully. He will be in the presence of Jesus. And, and the reason this, is, this is, brings him joy is because he's already in the presence of Jesus. He already knows what it's like to have Jesus in his life on this side of death. And it's pretty great. It's pretty awesome. How much more so it's going to be when he's freed from all of this sin and death. You see, if, if, if Paul wasn't really experiencing the presence of Christ in his life, then what is he looking forward to? Why does he want more of nothing? That doesn't make any sense. It's because he knows what he has in part today. He's going to have in full in the future. I don't know if this example works, but it's kind of like when you get those food samples from Costco. I'm not sure. It might work. But you get a little taste, right? You get a little taste. And because he has the, the, this taste of Jesus in his life, what Christ has done. He can't wait till he's going to have it in full. And that's why even death to him is joy. Spiritual growth of others, spread of the gospel, the presence of Christ in his life. Well, we come to the text today and, and he's going to, kind of drill down. This is kind of like the, the heart of the letter, the body of the letter. And, and he's, going to, he's going to kind of go back to something that he introduced in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 27, where he said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's, he's, going, to, he's going to go there and then explain a little bit more about what we need to do if this is going to happen. And he, he was trying to bring together these two, these two things. He's going to talk about the church and about the church being united and how when the church is united, it actually brings him joy. And it should bring him joy and it should bring us joy. But he's going to tie together joy and love. You see... One of the reasons the world struggles with joy is because it struggles with love. There's two things that joy and love have in common. You know, joy and, and love that we can write off, see, have in common is that, is that they, they last. It, it, if it's not really love, if it's just like, what do we call it, infatuation, it's not really love. You don't want to marry someone who's infatuated with you because tomorrow they might not be. Just like you don't want to base everything on happiness because tomorrow you might not be happy. But joy and love have, both have these, these abiding qualities. And we can see that right off the bat. But it also means that not only do they last, but they also take effort 
joy and love take effort. Everything Paul's told us, it's, it's like, it's not just something he feels, it's, it's what he's doing. He's, he's sharing the gospel. He's investing in others. He's living for Christ. He's doing all these things. He's not just sitting passively expecting someone to make him happy. And so, a lot of people, you know, they don't want to commit to that kind of love. That kind of lifelong, abiding, eternal love that's going to walk with somebody through all the ups and downs of life. All those things we say in our, in our wedding vows, you know, in sickness and health, rich or poor, right? We say all these things, and it takes effort. But there's some things that we get from Paul that also tells why we, why we struggle with joy and struggle with love. It's because Paul has told us joy is other-centered. It's centered not in my feelings. It's centered in others. It's centered in, in God and loving God and serving God. It's, it's centered in fellow Christians, which is why he wants to invest in their lives. But it's also centered in those who are lost, those who are outside the faith. His joy is, is not centered on himself. And so, if we really look at joy, the world, again, struggles with joy because the world wants to have joy that, that's focused on the self. And see, we also can't really embrace the kind of love that produces this kind of joy. Because we always have love that wants something back. We, we can't really love unconditionally. It's a struggle for us. We want to have some kind of payback. It, it may not be a big thing. It may be small in comparison to um, what we think we're giving. But we want something. And when we don't get something, that something, you know, kind of steals our joy. You know, sometimes people will ask, and, and I don't, you know, know, always know that this is the best question, but sometimes it's the only question we can do. But, but they'll ask, or we might ask, you know, what can I do for you? What can I, how can I help you? And sometimes people um, might ask me, like, oh, what, what can we do to help you at the church? Well, if I were to follow what Paul says, I would say this, I would say, that we be more in love with God. You, you want to know what you can do to help me at the church. Be more in love with God today than you were yesterday and be more in love with each other. And not only that, show that love in service and unity. I have a feeling if I gave people that response, their next question might be, um, something else? You know, is, is, could I help you some other way? But it's like, it's not really what I want. 
Sure, I would love people to do different jobs and things like that. But it's what I see that, that Paul is saying. We, we really want to help. We want to help the church. We want to help leaders. We want to, you know, do what we need to do. Well, that all has to begin by saying we will be more in love with God, which means we need to know God more. We need to know His Word. We need to live for Him. We need to live out our faith. But we'll be more in love with God and we'll be more in love with each other. You know, we sang that song, The Love of God. And, and again, we, we tend to take God's love for granted. I mean, it just tells me sometimes like how, how I don't really think about God's love because I, I, I don't sometimes feel anything. There's no move. And I'm not saying every time you think of God's love you should weep. But when's the last time that happened? Has it ever happened? Have you ever been overwhelmed by the thought that a holy and perfect and loving God loves you? It's hard. Because we've just kind of just, you know, we, we, we love the benefits of being loved. But I don't know that sometimes we're willing to embrace that experience. Because I'm going to tell you, when the love of God gets a hold of you, it's scary. It might yank you out of that image you've carefully created for yourself of being, you know, so careful and so, you know, matter of fact and so common sense and everything. And, and, and you know, it might make you confront things and we're deathly afraid of it. And so we don't really want to think about God's love in the sense that, that it just truly just washes over us. Or as Paul says in Romans, that, that the Spirit is pouring it out, pouring love into our lives. It, it's just not going to fit our image. And so we might think about it, but we're going to try to keep it under control. But really, that's what we need to do. We need to be more in love with God, and we need to be more in love with each other. You know, my dad used to say that if, um, you know, if he talked to um, a couple that um, was getting married and said, you know, I want to love, you know, we want to love each other as much today, I mean, in, you know, in 20 years, as much as we do today. My dad would tell them, no, that's wrong. If, if you want to love as much as you do today, that tells you that the love has never grown. Love should grow. Our love for each other should grow. Our concern for each other should grow. The more we get to know each other, the better we can love one another. And again, we've made this thing about church, about keeping each other at a certain safe, comfortable distance where we can say, I know you, you're my friend, we get along, but 
you never share your burdens and I never share mine and we like it that way. I will only go help you when it is, it's impossible for you to get help anyplace else or when you're just so just immobilized that you have to take my help. Do we know each other? Do we, do we, do we carry each other's burdens? You know, I kind of like what's happening like with our, our deacons, and some of you benefited yesterday. And I told my Sunday school class, if you didn't get a visit from the deacons yesterday, don't feel bad, um, because they started from the oldest church members to the youngest. So if you did get visited, well, you know. Um, but, you know, I like what's happening. I like that in this time of this shutdown that we're not saying, well, you know, we'll check in with everybody when all this is over. That the deacons, and not just the deacons, but others of you are making repeated efforts to go and ask and, and contact and, and let people know. Let people know that they're, that they're thought of and they're prayed for and that there's people that are willing to help them if they need help and they're not alone. But that's what we need. We, not, we don't just need to feel love. Sure, as I said, love is a feeling. We don't just need to feel love. We need to express it. We need to show it. And it's awesome when I see so many of you guys doing that, even in this time. Well, the, the text today from chapter 2, I broke this into two parts. And it's both talking about like this important ingredient in church unity. So Paul's talking to these Christians and, you know, and he's trying to explain to them while he's under arrest how they can have joy. So he's talking to these Christians and he's, he's telling them, like, again, what you do brings me joy. And now he's talking about that when they are walking as a church and they're walking in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ, worthy of the gospel, that they bring him joy. And so now he's going he's gonna to tell them, like, this is the thing. This is the ingredient. And it's hard to tell with Philippians whether Paul is teaching them or if he's just reminding them, just reinforcing for them something that they already knew. But if we look at this, chapter 2, verse, verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's, he's giving a condition, and he, he explains that condition in three or four ways. And then he says, this is what you should do. If these things are true, this is what you should do. And what he's communicating to them is that church unity, church unity is a result 
of a shared experience of being in Christ. True church unity is not because we're all the same. It's not because we're all the same age or the same you know, gender or come from the same you know, political background or same socioeconomic status. No, it is because we have a shared experience of being in Christ. So what he's saying at the beginning there, he's saying, if you have these things, this is what will happen. If you have encouragement in Christ, if you have comfort from love, if you have participation in the Spirit, if you have affection and sympathy, then what will result is church unity. So let me reverse that for a second. If you don't have church unity... What does that mean? If your church isn't growing more and more in love with God and in love with each other, what does that mean? It would seem to mean that we're not having encouragement in Christ. We're not having comfort from love. We're not having participation in the Spirit. We don't have affection and sympathy. It would seem to be that we are not having a shared experience of being in Christ. And that could be for a lot of different reasons. It could be that some among us aren't experiencing being in Christ at all. Maybe they're only like Christian in name, but they're not really experiencing Christ in their lives. For others, it may be they're experiencing Christ in their lives, but, but there's, you know, there's problems. Maybe there's just sin in their lives. Maybe they've let life overwhelm them. And so they, they might struggle. And then a lot of others have kind of bought into this mindset that their experience with Christ is between them and God. And they have a wonderful time with God all by themselves. But it is not a shared experience in Christ. You cannot have a healthy church. You cannot be the church the way that the Bible talks about the church if you primarily think of your salvation as an as a individual thing between you and God. If you don't understand that when you were reconciled to God, you were reconciled to everyone else who had been reconciled to God. If you don't realize that your relationship to God, it just directly affects your relationship to others. And you think that somehow you can live in this kind of, kind of, kind of, hermit kind of Christianity. Just you and God on the mountaintop alone. It's a problem. And so for different reasons, we don't have this shared experience. Either because not having the experience, we're struggling with things that, you know, kind of making it difficult. Or we don't share it. We think the experience is just for me. And so he says, if, 
if you have these things, that love will result. Unity will result. Cannot help it. It's one of the reasons when we come together, um, we don't just want to hear from the Word. We want to hear from each other. It's really what fellowship is about. Fellowship is, is about you know, this shared life that we have and, and being willing to, to not just get together and talk about the weather or talk about the sports or talk about COVID or whatever, but actually be talking about the experiences that we're having in Christ. Not in a way that's bragging, but in a way that's just talking, just sharing. And that when we do that, that we begin to understand we have a common experience. One of Satan's best weapons is to make you think that you're unique. To make you think that you're the only person who's ever thought that. You're the only person that's ever faced that situation. Because if Satan can get you to think that you're unique, then, then you can sit back and, and say like, nobody understands me, nobody gets it, and so, um, you know, because I'm too unique, I'm too special. And you might think this comes out in people being like arrogant about how awesome they are, and it's really not. It comes out the other way. When they're facing struggles or they're having doubts, when they're, when they're struggling with things that are going on in their heads, they think like no one else thinks this way. And why do they think that? Because when they look around, even before we didn't have masks on, people came to church with masks. And it usually was a happy mask. You, you put it on before you came to church. And in fact, you might have even trained your kids to put that mask on. You know, all the way from when you got up in the morning, it was rah, 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 everybody arguing. You get in the car, rah, 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 right before you get out of the car, it's like, okay, we're at church now. And you might not have ever told your kids to put on their mask, but as soon as you did, they did. As soon as you did, they realized, hey, we're at church now. So uh, let's, let's be the happy family everybody expects us to be. And we put on masks. And when we put on masks, no one realizes that what we're struggling with, someone else is struggling with it too. I, I say this is a, and I've been in churches like this, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a condemnation on the church. When when a couple in the church that's been there for years gets divorced and everybody's like, wow, didn't see that coming. What a shock. To me, it's what a shame that they could have been in that church for so long and they obviously didn't just go to sleep one night and wake up the next day and say, let's end our marriage. They had been struggling with it for so many years and they didn't feel that they could show it to one single person in the church. What's wrong with us? 
And maybe they had good reasons. Maybe they tried to share it, but then some people just didn't help, disregarded. Other people might have tried to use it against them. What's wrong if that's our church? And we've all been there. We've all been in situations like this. But church unity, we have this common experience where we're willing to talk, we're willing to share. One of the keys to a healthy church is to be transparent. And it's one of the hardest ones because we've been trained to come to church to be the opposite. We've been trained to come to church to say, when someone says, how's everything going? We say, fine. When, you know, when someone wants to engage at any kind of deeper level, we, we want to back away. We've been trained to keep each other at a safe but cordial distance. Paul saying, man, if the Spirit gets a hold of you, if God's love gets a hold of you, if you've truly been made new, we won't be able to shut you up. We can't stop that love. That love is unrelenting. But then look at what he says. He says, be of the same mind, having the same love, being of, in full accord and of one mind. He's, he's kind of repeating the same thoughts, but he's bringing together those, these two things. This idea, he says the mind and he says love. Love is that, again, it's that motivation. It's why we do it. It is that feeling that we have. But there's also this purpose that we have the same purpose, the same reason for being together. Again, that's the challenge. It, it, if we don't talk about that, if, if we're not really trying to, to understand this more, and then it's constantly in front of us, we all will be part of a church for different reasons. And you might go, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is sometimes those reasons are contradictory. And they're going to oppose. And they're going to show up. Maybe in a business meeting. Maybe in a committee meeting. Maybe just, you know, people sitting around talking. We need to know not just what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. We need to know why we're here and why we're here at this particular point in time. We can't think like, you know, why are we here and then think like it's the same thing as 70 years ago. Or why we're here is going to be the same reason, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now. It's like right now, why does God have us here? What is his purpose right now? We know certain things don't change. We know, as our mission statement says, that we've been called to fulfill the Great Commission and obey the Great Commandment. We know we've been called to, to be the church and to share the Gospel. We know that. 
But what does that look like right here, right now? Because when we agree on that, when we agree on that, amazing things happen. It's this idea that, that we're all in there pulling in the same direction. I've never done the, uh, you know, the canoe paddling. I, I, I think uh, Statue, of Limitation, Statue of Limitations has passed on this, so I think I won't get in trouble. But I do remember going to Disneyland, and we took our youth group to Disneyland um, back when I was at Eva Beach, and we had gone on a mission trip, and on the way back we spent a day at Disneyland, and some of you guys remember Jeff Clay, who came and visited us early last year, spent a few months with us. He was another one of the youth workers with me. And we were in uh, Davy Crockett's canoe. Okay, and as you know, the, there's, you know, we're all paddling the canoe. But I told Jeff, just drag your paddle. Just drag your paddle on one side of the boat. Now, if you've ever been in a canoe or a boat, you know what happens when you drag a paddle on one side. No, everybody else is pulling in the same direction, and the poor tour guide is trying to get everybody to go this way. But Jeff and I are dragging our paddles in the boat, and the boat starts to turn, right? And, and the guy knows somebody's doing it. He can't figure out who. And, but he keeps dragging on the other side to straighten it out. And um, we almost successfully ran it aground on uh, one of the Treasure Island, whatever it was. But, you know, at the last minute we thought, like, this would really look bad if the youth pastors from the church were uh, put in Disney jail. Um, but we, were, we weren't paddling in the same direction. We didn't have the same reason for being in the boat as everybody else. We know that when everybody is doing it, we're doing different things, but we're doing it at the same time and we're moving in the same direction. But so many times in the church, you know, there's people that, that because we don't agree on the purpose, we don't agree on what we're doing now, we just want to pull the church in all these different directions. And when that happens, what usually happens in the church is you create these nice little territories you know, that everybody's pulled the church in different directions. And so you have, you know, the people over here that are really invested in the children's ministry and the people over here who are really invested in the senior adult ministry and over here in the music ministry. And, over, and everybody's got their own things. And as long as, you know, we more or less leave each other alone and there's enough money to pay the bills, we're good. That's not the unity that's being talked about here. We pull in the same direction. And we try to have the same commitment level. It's one thing to say we're gonna, we all believe we should go that way. It's another thing when people are willing to die for the church to go that way and others aren't willing to raise a finger. Oh, they'll watch you. They'll wave as you go and they'll applaud. They won't stand in your way but they're not at the same level of commitment. Paul's saying, man, when that happens, when, when you have that love and you have people going in the same direction and they have the same level of commitment, 
it's, it's awesome, dudes. It's great. It's a source of joy. Because you, you see what happens when the team is acting like a team. There's joy there. In verse 3 and 4, he says this. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And so what he's telling us here is that, is that this unity, it's going to come, and it's not surprising for Paul to say this, when we're focused more on our brothers and sisters in the church than we are on ourselves. When we're focused more on, on what others and how others are growing and how others are benefiting than what it's doing for me. And this has been a problem in the modern church, in the modern church in America especially, because we've been kind of, uh, and I'm not just talking about contemporary churches, I'm even talking about traditional churches. We've been, we've been obsessed with some form of consumerism. And consumerism tries to sell products by telling you why you need the product or why you want it. In other words, it's about you. And churches have done the same thing where the whole focus in the church has been on what you get out of church. What you gain. What you benefit. And it's not surprising that people shop for churches the way they shop for a car. They go to the church and they look for the features that they want. You know, I'm I'm hoping we don't ever get to this point, but um, I remember watching a comedy thing where um, this was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's probably funnier then. When they were talking about these new cars that came out and this, this one customer only cared about how many cup holders there were. That's all. Like, the person's trying to explain the engine and the brakes. How many cup holders are there? But I think sometimes when we're in... in in churches today that have that are focused on consumerism, it's like we better make sure we got cup holders. We only got cup holders for the Lord's Supper cup. It's too small. We need to make them bigger so people can put their water flask in there. But people will choose their church based on what they want out of church. And there's a certain part of me at first, and probably you, that goes, what's wrong with that? And then you really think about it. What's wrong with it? You went to the church because of what you were going to get out of it? Rather than looking for the church that you could be a part of where you could contribute as much as was being given back to you and maybe more so? There's something wrong when we just go, when we get out of something. Now, there are times in our lives when I think that's important. I think when, you know, when we're young Christians or when we've gone through trauma, that sometimes we need a place where it needs to be more focused on us, where we can get healing and get help. But the problem is, is that when church is based on what I get out of it, as soon as I stop getting that, I'm going somewhere else. 
And is that the kind of unity that Paul's talking about? Because remember what he said the Philippians are going to do soon? They're going to suffer. They're going to suffer. They're going to be persecuted. I don't know about you, but if I was looking for a church with the consumer mindset, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't go to the one that's being persecuted. It's just me. Maybe you would be like, oh, no, that's great. That's what I want. I want a church where that, you know, people are being persecuted. But most of us, no, we're not going to do that. And if I went to that church because of what it could give to me, and then all of a sudden it's being persecuted, guess what I'm going to do? I'm out the door. Going somewhere else. Because I'm not getting out of this church what I, what I you know, want to get out or I expect it to get. Unity comes when we focus on the others. And so he, said, he talks about selfish ambition. It's a similar thing that James talked about when we were, when we were looking at James. And, and he said the same thing. He, you know, he said, James says, this selfish ambition leads to division. Leads to division. And then he says the word conceit. And the word conceit doesn't quite do justice to that word. The word is more like this idea of, of empty glory. There's this odor word. I never use this word in a sentence other than right now. Um, it's the word vainglory. But it's the same idea. It's empty glory, which means that we have this, you know, we look at what we've done and and, and we're either taking credit for other people's accomplishments or we're taking too much pride in our own accomplishments. And he's saying, no, this, isn't, this doesn't work. Because you know when you do that, you, you know, you're just, you're, your focus is on, the, is on the past. Your focus is on yourself. And notice how this is so opposite of Paul. His letter so far, it's so little about himself. He doesn't even say he's the one responsible for um, evangelizing the Praetorian Guard. He just said it happened. And again, it gets back to this, this thing we find in James about that when we start to evaluate based on like earthly measures, earthly success, that as soon as we do that, it's a threat, it's a danger to unity. Oh, we might grow, we might have lots of people, but do we have unity? Do we have the depth of love? Or do we just have the externalities of success? And then he gives us the opposite. And next week we're going to talk so much more about this, but he says humility in humility. Humility, I, I use this kind of metaphor, humility is the mortar of church unity. Mortar, it's that thing that goes between the bricks, holds them together. Humility is the mortar of, of church unity. Humility is when you consider, consider others more significant. It says, consider them more significant than yourselves. In other places, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. 
Look at how you can serve each other. And don't just sit around and wonder why nobody's serving you. And by the way, don't serve thinking like, what comes around goes around, or what goes around comes around, or some kind of karma. Oh, if I serve others, then I'm going to get paid back. No. It's not what he's talking about. You might get paid back. In fact, if you're in a healthy church, you probably will be served. But you don't serve because you expect to be served. You treat others as more significant. And it's, notice he says, you don't neglect, you don't neglect your own interest. But you don't only look to your own interests. You look to the interests of others. Yes, humility is more than a feeling. It's more than just, you know, okay, yeah, I'm humble. It actually takes action. And there is this care for the self, but there's also care for others. And Paul is saying, you know, when we focus on humility, when we focus on others, unity will result. Well, why does unity bring Paul joy? Why is unity so important? Three quick things. One, it means the gospel is working. The gospel is true. God is bringing together people who have no earthly reason to be together. People from every tribe, every tongue, every socioeconomic class, every age. And He brings them together, not just on a Sunday morning, but He brings them together and He creates, he creates a family from people who have nothing else in common other than they have this common experience of faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is true. It's doing exactly what the Bible says it would do. So when we have church unity, it is a witness to the world. It's evidence that we can say the Bible is true. And here's proof. The second thing, it means the gospel is advancing. If Paul knows like, if a church is being a church and it's being a witness and people are seeing it, he's, what he sees is happening there is what happened in Acts. People were drawn to that. This weird, uncommon, strange group of people getting together every night in each other's homes and, and praying and singing and you know, eating food together and all this other stuff, it kept attracting people. So he knew the gospel was advancing. And then he also knew the gospel will do even more. This is just the beginning. So he's, he gives him joy to know that, look, we've got this healthy un, united church. It's having an effect right now on the people right there. It's having an effect on the people around them. But it also means that it's going gonna, it's gonna to have repercussions that go throughout time. As peoples whose lives are changed help change other people's lives, that help change other people's lives, that help change other people's lives. The gospel is indeed transforming the community, 
transforming society. But church unity, it can be so difficult. We know it. We know that we often settle for something less than true unity. We just settle for just getting along, just not, you know, being angry at each other. But understand, church unity is so much more than that. And I think the reason is is because we get our focus wrong and next week we're going to be reminded of where our focus should be. Our eyes need to be on Jesus. Because when our eyes are on Jesus, our eyes turn from ourself and they don't just stare at Jesus, but they turn to others. They turn to others and we're able to do exactly what Paul is saying right here. Joy in church unity. When we know the depth of love that we can experience in a church that's truly united, I don't think we could ever get enough. Let's pray.